New Testament. We are at Ephesians chapter 3. The text is verse 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 3. I'll begin reading from verse 14 through verse 21. This also is God's holy word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let we go to our God together in prayer. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are strong and mighty. We thank you, Father, that in your word you have promised your love to us, that you have covenanted with us. Father, we thank you for your promises are sure. Father, we pray that your people, that we your people, would come to a greater understanding of your love and Christ's love for us more each day that this transforming love would turn our hearts away from the ways of this world, that it would turn our hearts away from our own sin, our own seeking of pleasure, our own seeking of glory, our own seeking our selfish ways. Father, instead, we pray in thanks that your steadfast love to us is a constant. It was from everlasting, and it will be to everlasting. Father, we pray that you would remind us that your love indeed is better than life. And Father, we pray and thanks that your love is the reason that we have to live. May we give you glory in all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. Father, if any are here who have not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of transformation. We pray, Father, for your people, that we would long for you, that we would trust in you all the more. We pray that our Lord Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are many things in life which appear like fool's errands, but we still do them. For example, the battle in my my yard for weeds. The weeds are always going to be there. In times of drought, where you look at it doesn't, rain, it doesn't rain for quite some time, the lawn is brown. But these weeds, they are so green. They don't need to be tended to. Where do they get that moisture? How do they grow? We don't have all the answers to those questions. But we do know the lawn is brown, the weeds are green. And you ask, why would we fight this battle, right? And the answer is, hey, because you know we ought to keep the lawn looking green 
you know, uniform, right? If it's going to be brown, let it be brown, right? Not have these green weeds sticking up in them. You think about uh, our, our own lives, right? For some of you, right? You take care of yourself physically, right? You, you try to exercise, try to eat right. And then here also, you, you look at our spiritual lives, even as we think here, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that this is called an oxymoron. When you think of oxymoron, it's not, it's not don't, don't think about a, a 15-year-old male with pimples, right? No, no, this is, this is uh, oxymoron, meaning that it's something that's, that we have a contradiction. How can we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Well, we should desire to know the love of Christ because you realize so much of your Christian life is based on this love of Christ. It, it's not as if uh, your understanding of Christ's love changes the quantity of his love or the quality of his love for you. His quality of, the quality of God's love, Christ's love for you, is, is in every way the same. Right? Your understanding of it, though, will certainly affect how you live. It will certainly affect the way that you think, the way that you act. It's not as if your understanding of it being more means that God's love is more. No, his, his love was the same, and it will be the same. But you realize that the question, when, when oftentimes I ask people, hey, would you like to do this? Meaning, hey, would you like to do uh, an act of service? Hey, would you like uh, to have this change in your life for the better? And, and I get this look of, why, why would I do that? And, and perhaps the simplest answer in every one of those situations is because of Christ's love for you. Maybe I'd say that from now on. Because of Christ's love for you. Because that's, that's going to be the obvious answer. Why would I do that? Why would I spend my time serving other people? Because of Christ's love for you. When did anyone ever do that for me? Because Christ willingly laid down his life for you. I'm not asking you to die on behalf of other people. I'm asking you to give up an hour or two of your time. Whatever it might be. And that you and I ought to be thinking often about Christ's love for you. The reason being, because this love is a transforming love. The more that you grow in your understanding of Christ's love, the more that you will change. The more that you will be like our Lord Jesus Christ. That maturity is tied to it. Your growth is tied to it. Your, uh, the health of your spiritual life is tied to it. Here, when we come to this passage, it's, it's the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, it's, it's, it's a recording of one of Paul's prayers. And it sets, uh, it sets kind of the, the in-between of verses 1, uh, sorry, chapters, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. He's talking about what God has done. So the indicatives, right? He t talks about uh, God's great plan, God's, uh, God's work. And then he transitions eventually to Ephesians 4 through 6, which is your duty. And I don't know if you noticed, but the, the letters of Paul and many of the letters in the New Testament have this same pattern. It begins by telling you what God has done, and then it tells you how then you ought to live. And the transition between, between the two in Ephesians here is rightly this prayer of Paul, that he bows his knees before the Father and he prays on behalf of people such as you and me. That our Lord Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17. And that this also 
is for your good and for mine. So the truth that we see in this passage, your growth, service, and maturity in Christ are proportional to your understanding and experience of Christ's love for you. Your growth, service, and maturity in Christ are proportional to your understanding and experience of Christ's love for you. We'll look at this in two points. The first, your knowledge of Christ's love. Second, the goal of Christ's love. So the first point, your knowledge of Christ's love in verses 18 and the first part of verse 19. So you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here we think about uh, the context of this letter. That in it here the Apostle Paul is giving his prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. He's realizing that the Ephesians have not yet arrived. And the truth is that none of you have. I have not. None of us have arrived. And we need to come to a greater understanding of the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of Christ's love for us. And here, the things that he mentions all kind of go together. So in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, according to the riches of God's glory, that the Lord lavished upon us his mercy and his grace and his love, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So all of this is describing that there would be some great spiritual change within us so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That this indeed is a good thing. It all speaks about the same thing. The Holy Spirit indwelling you, Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Meaning that your very foundation, the very foundation of your life, of your being, is God's love for you in Christ. We have also this matter of knowledge. Here, in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend. So there is this spiritual strength, this spiritual power being manifested. That if in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul describes it as a discernment, that you've been set apart, that you freely accept the things that come from the Spirit because of the Spirit's power at work in you. So the world will, will hear these things, and it's like the love of God, what are you talking about, right? Who cares about that? And they poof, despise it, right? That they, they are ignorant of it, and there's a despising of it. When instead, you and I would say, wait, no, wait a minute, this is important. And, and here I, I think about how the love of God is something that should drive us. Oftentimes, within Christianity, there are other groups that perhaps focus only on his love. That, that, that's the only characteristic that they talk about. And perhaps there is an imbalance because there are so many other characteristics. Here, we read earlier from our confession, chapter 2, verse 1, these characteristics, these attributes of God. And out of all those attributes, there, there's one mentioned, right, uh, regarding his love, he's most loving, most gracious, most merciful. So his, his love is one of his many attributes. It's not his only attribute. But this is one of those situations where if someone's misunderstanding, uh, it, it should not negatively affect your view about the truth. 
Meaning that if one group only focuses on love, the answer for us is not that we would ignore his love. Can you see that? If one group only, only says there's God's love and there's nothing else, so, well, there's all these other characteristics, we must acknowledge them too. But well, here, may God's love not disappear from our vocabulary because it's so essential for your spiritual growth and your spiritual life. Here, we think about knowing the facts, right? Getting the facts down that Christ indeed died on a cross, that he rose on the third day. And these are facts. You can go look in the history books. Those facts are there. That there was an empty tomb. That the world would interpret things differently. That he died on a cross. There's a different reason for why he was there, according to the world. And, and this is where the facts then lead to this knowledge regarding true doctrine. So that the doctrine explains those facts to us. You think about Christ dying on the cross, right? That uh, he, he wasn't some type of a capital criminal, even though he was treated like one. He died the death of one, but he himself was no capital criminal. He is sinless. And here we think about in a society that not all sins are crimes, but all all crimes ought to be sins, if you can understand that difference. If, if a society is going to punish something as a crime, that there must be a sin involved. But not, not all the sins uh, that are sins of, sins of uh, heart or of action ought to be crimes in a society. It would be impossible to, to, in, to enforce. But here, when we think about uh, the work that Jesus did, that he was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. Romans 4.25. He died on a cross as a sinless substitute for sinners. He didn't die the death of a criminal uh, that, he, that he committed as, as crimes. He died there uh, unjustly in the sense that he was falsely accused. That God's design was that by the hands of wicked men that he would be nailed to the cross. And that this was for our good. Here, think about how Jesus was accused of all kinds of things. One of the, the Jews here accused him of, hey, he claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> and there was, there was no crime, there's no sin in that, because he is the Messiah. That he died on the cross as a sinless substitute for sinners, such as you and I. That the very death you and I deserve to die. And he rose again from the dead as proof that he had no sin. And this is why we say he was raised to life for our justification. Here, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus cannot end there. It's not merely a loving of facts, a, a loving of doctrine. That when you think about some of these people in church history, that... They died, and if you ask them, what is justification, they may not have an answer for you. Earlier on in the life of the church, they may not have that answer, but what they were dying for is that they were dying for our Lord Jesus. And we, we can't say to them, hey, there's, there's, something, uh, there's, there's something improper or wrong about your faith. Well, there's probably something improper or wrong about our own faith if if we are unwilling to lay down our lives for our Lord Jesus, that we're unwilling to suffer on his behalf, right? We, we can say, hey, we have all this knowledge, 
But ultimately, does anyone go to the mat? Does anyone go go to the stake? Right? Does anyone go to uh, to judgment because of the love of doctrine? They go to it out of a love for a person, out of a love for Jesus Christ. Here, ultimately, your your love is of a person. It's a personal knowledge. <coughs> Philippians chapter. 3 verses 9 through 11 and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead here you think about the life that you live that you have the fellowship of his sufferings Right, so so you think about oh, I, I get to, I get a benefit from all these things. That Jesus died on the cross, He was raised to life for my justification. That's all great, but then, you know, is there something missing in your life? If there is no fellowship of His sufferings, the answer is yes. There would be something missing. That this is part of your life. This is part of my life. That if it's hey, you get all the negatives, I get all the positives. That. I write all the checks and you cash all of them and make sure that nothing in the account fails. And, and we continue living our life according to our pleasures, our own pride. Is there something missing about the Christian life? The answer is indeed there is. Here also we think about how in this verse may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. That this knowledge is not merely an individual knowledge. This, this knowledge is a collective knowledge. It's not only that one person would, would know the love of Christ. You realize that it's true for a body. It's true for a body of believers. It's true for a congregation. That there would be a collective knowledge about the Lord Jesus and his love. <clears throat> Here, when we think about the work of the church... That you think about the ministry of instruction, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, through the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here. The description is that there would also be this mutual pointing one another to the love of Christ. That we would spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Well, how is it that we spur one another on to love? Is that we point others uh, to how Christ's love was manifested to us. We don't just grow in love. It's coming to a greater understanding of Christ's love for you. Here, we think also about the dimensions of Christ's love. The breadth, the length, the height, and depth. Uh, this fourfold description speaks about something that is real. Something that is real. Something that you can touch. Something that you can taste. Something that you can feel. Regarding the breadth, that Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 describes this breadth. After these things I look and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This breath 
of Christ's love speaks about how every people group in the world will be represented in heaven. That Christ saves not just a few, but the description there in Revelation 7-9 is that he saves a great multitude. And the realization for every Christian that we ought to have as we think about the various people groups that are represented, that we're part of, that every single one of us should come to this conclusion, is that there's absolutely nothing in you, there's absolutely nothing in your people group that is worth saving. Now you ask, wait, well, what about this people group? There's not a people group on this earth that's not a descendant of Adam. Every, every one of the people groups are descendants of Adam. And because of that, none of us is worthy to be saved. None, none of us, none of us, and none of the people groups are, are hey, you know what, God, this group is, is they, they merit something before you. Absolutely not. Every one of those people groups are, are worthless because they're descendants of Adam. They're sinners. No group can claim, hey, we're more worthy to be saved than another group. If you claim that, I think there's something deficient in your understanding about sin and how it affects all of the human race. Here, we ought to understand that God's love is exceedingly broad. Sometimes we think that we have a monopoly on true Christian doctrine. Well, this breadth of Christ's love is a slap in the face to all of those who think, you know what, we're the only ones with, the, with, we're the ones with the best doctrine and we look down on everyone else. Do not do that. You realize that Christ's love is far broader than yours. We have also the length, the length of God's love. <clears throat> Here, when you think about weddings, when you think about these grandiose uh, these grandiose vows, right? How many of them are actually fulfilled? How often have you been at a wedding, and perhaps more of this will happen, that you attend a wedding, you hear these vows, and you ask yourself, wow, is, is that really going to hold true? How, how long will that last? And... I've been to a wedding where they didn't stay together for more than two years, right? And there were these great vows. Eventually, uh, she left him because he was no longer going to remain in this occupation, this, this high, high-ranking, aspired occupation. And it's like, wow, is that, is that for real? That the love didn't last two years because you're not going to be this, this uh, high and mighty uh, role in society, then I'm done with you. And, and the world often vows great things, but none of it is fulfilled. In contrast to that, we have Christ's love. That it didn't just start yesterday, and it's not going to end tomorrow. As we read earlier in Psalm 103, <clears throat> that his love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Understand that for a moment. That Christ's love to you did not start when, when you made vows to him publicly. 
that when you took membership vows or you professed faith in Christ, God's love to you, Christ's love for you did not start then. It started far earlier. Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 4 and 5. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's love for you was before the creation of the world. How can we understand eternity? There's eternity past, there's eternity future, right? That perhaps we can say for God's people, there was no beginning for God's love for you, for his elect. His love always was, and his love always will be. That there's no beginning and there's no end. That this is, this is the length that we're talking about. There's no beginning, there's no end to his love for you. And perhaps some of you are questioning, God, this difficulty has come up in my life. I don't know if you truly love me. Right? And the question is, hey, was there a blip? Right? Was, was, was there a, a, a stop in the payment because uh, some, some check was lost in the mail? No, there, there, there's, there's, no, there's no end to it. There's no beginning and there's no end. And it's constant everywhere in between. Then, then you ask, what went wrong? What went wrong probably is some misunderstanding on your part or mine regarding God's love for us. Regarding the height. The height. We think about the terminus of God's love. The end of it. Right? Love accomplishes its purpose. It brings you to the heights of heaven. Right? You think about uh, love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. It accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. And you ask here, is God's love somehow going to fail us? Is it going to be in any way insufficient for us? That Jesus said, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. You think, you think that the, uh, the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, uh, the Waldorf Astoria, do you think any of those places are going to compare to a, a room in heaven? That Jesus is prepared. The answer is it can't possibly compare. His place will be far, far better for us. Psalm 103 verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. So high, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Think about this for a moment. Meaning that the height of God's love. The height of Christ's love for you and for me. There's no end to it. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. Here, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about this height. How infinite this height is. And there's no end to it. There's no stopping it. You think about all the demons who get involved. They tempt you. Hey, God has failed you. God's deserted you. You think about all these lies that come. Don't believe them. That none of these things can stand in the way of God's love for you. There's also the depth. The depth of Christ's love. That Christ, in his love, he condescends. He stoops down low to save you. To save and to care for insignificant man. 
The prophet Isaiah describes how all the nations are but a drop in the bucket. But you and I can come to our God and bring our concerns to him. And it's not as if somehow there's something inherent in us that's worthwhile. You and I ought to conclude there's nothing in us that's worthwhile. There's nothing in us that's worthwhile listening to. But God condescends to our level to care for us. And in fact, he condescends to our level first to save us. That he saves us from the lowest pit. That he saves us, even the worst of sinners. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here, this is Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I wish that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The The world's notions about love is that it is irrational. And when we think about uh, the eros or the erotic love, it is irrational. It's certainly irrational. I'll give you one example. I was talking with my my head chaplain that uh, he he was meeting with a friend of his who's in his late 50s. And he was telling this chaplain friend of mine, hey, I have a wife that loves me. I have three grown children. And I know this woman, and she's telling me that we ought to get together, that we ought to have relations. And I'm thinking about it. My friend warned him, hey, listen, don't do that. You think about all the things in your life that will change for, for the worst. Your wife will sue you for half. Your children, your three children, your grown children who love you, that they will never talk to you again. All for a moment of pleasure. Are you, are you sure you want to do this? And he says, I'm going for it. He went for it. And sure enough, all the things that he warned his friend about happened. Was that irrational? You better believe it was irrational. It was stupid. It was irrational. And that, that, is, that is the Eros love. And that's the, world, that's the love that the world knows. But you have in contrast to that biblical love, the love that God shows to us, the, the love that God commands of us, it is rational. Wait a minute. I think you're wrong, because love isn't rational. No, no, love is rational. Now, you know how we know that? That God commands us that we would love him with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. If we're going to love God with all of our mind, then it must be rational. That love must be rational. You think about who God is to you, what Jesus has done on your behalf, willingly laying down his life. To die the sin, the, the shameful death of the cross. Is it rational to say that you would then live for his glory? That you would then live for him? That, that he has bought you by his precious blood? Is that rational? That is rational. It's inherently rational. Here. You think also about the love that surpasses knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13, it says that uh, now we see in the mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. You realize that this surpassing knowledge of Christ's love is not as if you die, you go to heaven, and then suddenly it's like, oh, I, I know all there is. 
about Christ's love. There's so much that is lost because of the, the remnants of our sin. But it's not as if when you go to heaven, it's going to be, okay, I got it. Now I know all there is about Christ's love. No. The answer is that throughout eternity in heaven, you will continue to learn and understand things about Christ's love. It's not as if when, when the perishable is removed, the imperishable is put on, and somehow you're suddenly going to understand it all. And the answer is no. This is what heaven will be, is that we will continually grow in our understanding of Christ's love for us. That that, that well doesn't run dry. And so here, we have the knowledge of Christ's love for you. We have also the goal of Christ's love. Second half, verse 18. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here, think about our lives. It's as if our lives uh, could contain the love of God. It's, it's like at the dedication of the temple, First, first Kings chapter 8. That Solomon is praying, and he's saying that these walls of this temple cannot contain the glory of God. And so also your life cannot restrain, it cannot contain the love of God. But that you would be filled with it. That that's something different, that you would be filled to overflowing with it. And so much of your life is dependent upon that. This being filled to the fullness of God. It's another way to say that you would come to maturity in Christ. That you would be holy as God is holy. That you would be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me ask you the question. What is hindering, what is hindering you from maturity in Christ? What's hindering you from your maturity in Christ is a lack of love on your part. The lack of love for Christ on your part. And, and we take a step back. Well, what is hindering uh, your lack of love for Christ? Well, on one hand, we could say it's the remaining love of self, your remaining love of pleasure, your remaining love for the world. But we could also say it's an ignorance. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of grasp of your love for Christ. You understand that? The lack of love that you have for Christ entirely a function of your lack of understanding of Christ's love for you. Here, we ask about certain things. When are you going to give up that pet sin of yours? Ultimately, what you're saying is, I love my sin more than I love Jesus. You think about how are we willing to change? Because here, I acknowledge that we're creatures of habit. We don't like change, right? We don't like change. We don't like going out of our comfort zones. And I'm thankful that my father recently told me, hey, son, you got to get out of your comfort zones. I say, hey, I need to hear that. I need to hear that all the time. And here, I'm reminded, part of the ministry is that I'm supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Do you hear that? I'm supposed to, I, I'm my job is to make you feel uncomfortable with yourself. And, and, and the goal is that then you would find true comfort in Jesus Christ. 
Well, wait a minute. I, I want to think that everything I'm doing is fine. Everything I'm doing is, 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 uh, is perfect. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to break that up. That the Holy Spirit is supposed to come in and break that up for you. Are you indeed loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Here, you think about what the love of God does. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Do we understand enough about Christ's love for us? We don't unless we're saying that God's love is better than life. Oftentimes, we don't think that. We don't treasure it. God has asked us to do certain things in our lives. And when we don't do them, or we do them dragging our feet, we do it with improper attitudes. What we're saying is, you know what? God, Christ doesn't love me that much. What you're saying is, you know what? My sins aren't all that great. So Christ's sacrifice wasn't all that valuable. You ought to understand that there is an effect of Christ's love. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That there is a transforming effect of Christ's love. That Christ's love compels us. Christ's love controls us. This means that you have to give up your pet sins. Right? You, here you think about when the Lord met you, right? How many years have you been in your sins? In the, in the habit of, of feeding and nurturing those sins. And you realize that over time, those things must come to an end. That it took so much time to get into them, it's going to take significant effort to get out. And, and Christ is not one who says, you know what? You can have me, you can have your sins, and you can get to heaven. If you're loving your sins more than Christ, then I'm sorry to say, you're not saved. At least you're living the life of someone who is unsaved. You ought to be able to admit that. Here, that question that comes up again. Why would I do that? What do you mean? You, you think I, I need to do this in my life. Why would I do that? Do it because of Christ's love for you. That Christ's love for you and your understanding of that love ought to be growing all the time. Why should I give up this lifestyle? You should give it up because Christ commanded it. He's paid the price to set you free. And this freedom was not free. It cost Christ his life. Mm -hmm. That he rightfully claims authority in your life because he's paid the price to free you from the wrath of God, free you from bondage. He sets you free. And that you and I ought to understand more and more each day that Christ's love for us surpasses knowledge. May we go to our God together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for you indeed are trustworthy. That you sent your son to...